Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. This is The Skip Bayless Show, episode 38. This, as always, is the un-undisputed. Everything I cannot share with you during the two-and-a-half-hour go-for-the-throat debate show that is undisputed. Today, I will take you way behind the scenes of what I went through during Sunday night's Cowboys at Eagles game And then what I went through on Monday morning on Undisputed. Next, I will tell you why Tom Brady will win this year's Super Bowl. Next, I will review simply the worst movie I have ever, ever watched. Now on Netflix. And finally, I will tell you why I fear that my man Baker Mayfield's football playing and commercial making careers are coming to an end. But first up, as always, it is not to be skipped. Let's start with a question from you, shall we? Let's take one from Jerome from Virginia who asks, how hard was it waking up for Undisputed on Monday? Good question. It was, Jerome, extremely hard to get to sleep very late for me on Sunday night. I slept for maybe three hours, but it was not hard at all to explode out of bed when my alarm went off, as always, at 2 a.m. L.A. time. 2 a.m. L.A. time. I was on fire to tell cowboy haters and a surprising number, a shocking number of of cowboy lovers what really happened in that game. In my career, I have never seen a player as disrespected and underappreciated as Cooper Rush was before Sunday night's game, during Sunday night's game, and certainly after Sunday night's game. In the end, what happened Sunday night in Philadelphia was not Cooper Rush's fault. In fact, it was almost his quote-unquote fault that the Cowboys won that game. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is what led to the most heated opening segment in my undisputed history with my debate partner, Shannon Sharp. But before I get to that, here's the backstory of how my Sunday night unfolded. I began at kickoff with my daughter, quote unquote, Hazel, in her little bed at my feet. Hazel's, you probably know, is our six-year-old now. Happy birthday, Hazel, on Tuesday. Now six-year-old Maltese, and she is my constant companion when I am at home. 
But as I warned Hazel before the game started, and as I tweeted before the game started, I wasn't sure at that moment if Josh Allen and the Buffalo Bills could withstand the onslaught that the Cowboys were about to get hit between the eyes with. The bonfire, the buzzsaw that those Eagles have become. Do you realize those ball-hawking Eagles are running away with the takeover, I'm sorry, the uh, takeaway race in the National Football League? They've taken the ball away now 14 times while also leading the league in fewest giveaways, only two. Let's see, they've taken it away 14. They've given it away only two times. So now in the all-important telltale turnover differential, the big green machine is plus 12. That's eight clear of the second place teams in turnover diff, the Ravens and the Vikings. That's impossibly great. The, the truth is the Cowboys are running away with the NFL so far. And into that Sunday night cauldron in Philadelphia was thrown one Cooper Rush, who had started all of five NFL games even though he had won all five. So what happened right away? 9.25 left in the first quarter, shortly into the game, still nothing to nothing. Cooper Rush completed his first two passes, two straight passes, one to Tony Pollard for eight, then another one to Jake Ferguson, the rookie out of Wisconsin, the tight end, for 13 big yards. Cowboys about to have the ball out at midfield with Cooper Rush momentum. And what happened? C.D. Lamb, or as my partner Shannon calls him, C.D. Dam, flashes in late with a painfully obvious, completely unnecessary block in the back. Drive killed. Mike McPenalty's team strikes again. Mike McCarthy's Cowboys are the most undisciplined and poorly coached team in the National Football League, and how they overcome their coach, I don't know. So here, right on schedule, came the Eagles. 80 yards, 15 plays. But wait, they appear stymied. It's fourth and four at the Dallas 10-yard line. Time's running out in the first quarter, but it's field goal time. Time's running out. They rush to the line of scrimmage. Clearly just trying to draw the Dallas Cowboys offside before the quarter runs out. And guess what? My man Dante Fowler took the bait. He jumped. He bit. Lord have mercy. Three points became seven points. So first play after the kickoff. Cooper Rush went to Michael Gallup on a mid-range curl route. It was a good throw. It was on target. I had no problem with it. And James Bradbury, former Giants Pro Bowl cornerback, made the first of several great plays, game-saving plays, got his fingertips on the ball, the last split second, on-target throw, Ball popped straight up in the air. Could have popped sideways. Could have just hit the turf left or right. No, it popped straight up and back to Gardner Johnson. And Cooper Rush had thrown his first interception of this football season. Good throw. Scary bad result. Bonfire raged in Philly. Boom, boom, boom. 14 to nothing, Eagles. And for the first time, in the now six games that I've watched Cooper Rush, he lost some poise, some of that fearless pocket poise. I'll give you this. He unraveled a little, as many quarterbacks do and would have under that circumstance. He sailed to throw over the middle to Jake Ferguson, then down 17 to nothing, facing third and nine at the Dallas Cowboy 26-yard line. Cooper Rush ran for his life. He forced another throw to Gallup. This one a really bad idea because big play Slay undercut it and picked it. And that was it for Hazel.
she's almost always been a good luck charm for me, especially in the biggest games. But at that point, I said, Hazel, I think it's time for you to go see your mom, meaning my wife, Ernestine, who was watching said game out in the living room. I was in my office. Ernestine refuses to watch any game of any magnitude with me because I am too volatile and too psycho, and I admit it. So a moment later, Ernestine knocked on my office door. She stuck her head in, and she asked, not happily, you're kicking her out? I definitely was not happy at that moment, and I said, yes, I am. I just need to change my luck. By then, Philly had made it 20 to nothing. And by then, all the millions of people who have been made to look like fools by Cooper Rush were doing their happy dances, their victory dances, their greeties, their macarenas. I don't know what they were doing. All their happy dances, and they were all chanting, at least I could hear it echoing in the recesses of my psyche, told you so, told you so, told you so. I'm sure my man Shannon Sharp was up in his palatial estate high above me up in Bel Air saying, I told you he was an undrafted fraud. I told you he was nothing but an intern. I told you the Eagles would turn him back into a pumpkin. And of course, I glance at Twitter and I am trending number one in the United States. See, told you, told you, told you. The damnedest part of this is that I know a good number of Dallas Cowboy fans who had come to loathe Cooper Rush. Now, trust me on this. They have dog cussed Dak Prescott again and again back in the past. Somehow, the longer they watched Cooper Rush, and the more he won, the less they were sold on him. Damnedest thing. And the longer Dak was out, the greater he became. At that moment, as the Eagles roared ahead, 20 to nothing, minute and 47 seconds left in the half, Dak Prescott somehow became a combination of Josh Allen and Patrick Mahomes with Brady's brain. I could just hear Cowboy Nation exhaling and saying, finally, it's time for Dak to come back and save us. No more Cooper bloopers. I never seen anything like it before. Not in my life, not in my career. But I swear to you, I swear to you, at that moment, I did not give up on Cooper Rush. There's just something about this guy. Some mystical mojo about this guy that continues to intrigue me. I, obviously, Dak Prescott has a better arm than Cooper Rush. Dak is 6-6 six and six in his last 12 starts. Dak is 18-18 eighteen and 18 in his last 36 starts. Remember opening night against Brady's Bucks at Jerry World? Dak managed three points. You think Cooper Rush can't score? Dak, Dak scored three before he got hurt late in the game. I mean, do you remember the playoff game that ended last season? Do you remember... Dak had managed seven points through three quarters. It was 23-7 to seven San Francisco in a playoff game at Jerry World. He rallied furiously and made it semi-respectable at the end, but 23-7 to seven after three. Do you remember last year? Do you remember Denver? Do you remember at Kansas City? Do you remember the Raiders on Thanksgiving? Do you remember Kyler at Jerry World? Do you remember? I do. Painful memories. As Shannon has always called Dak, he's middle-of-the-pack Dak. Save us? So, now that the game was over, and now that Cooper Rush's career was over, guess what happened? 
Here came Cooper Rush. Third quarter. Huh. 11-yard completion, 9-yard completion. Wait, 12-yard completion to Noah Brown in the end zone? I, I thought it was a touchdown for a second. Sweet throw. Almost the catch of the week, if not the month, if not the year. Couldn't quite get both feet down or at least a foot and a buck cheek. And the call on the field was touchdown, and it was reversed. It was so close to a touchdown that would have made it 20-7. to 7. I'm sorry, I said it was in the third quarter. This is at the end of the half. Cooper Rush came right back with another throw. This one, I was sure was a touchdown because Michael Gallup broke completely free and clear and open in the back left corner of the end zone. If you have the tape, look at it. Perfect throw, right on the money, and Bradbury does it again. He's actually playing the underneath zone, and he backpedals, and he leaps, and he gets his fingertips on the throw and barely deflects it or it would have been 20 to seven at halftime instead of 20 to three at halftime. It was just the Eagles night. It just might be their year. Are they gonna lose again? They better. Christmas Eve at Jerry World. But hold on, hold the phone, stop the presses. Now we're in the third quarter, and here came Cooper Rush again. Again. 79 yards and nine plays. Completions of 9, 10, 22, and then capped off by a 14-yard run by, who's, who's that number 21? Blast from the pass. Oh, it's Zeke. Ezekiel Elliott scores from 14 yards out. Huh, interesting. 20 to 10. And here came Cooper Rush again. 93 yards and 15 plays. Nine-yard completion, 13, 10, 16, and then seven to Jake Ferguson, rookie out of Wisconsin, makes a nifty move near the goal line and scores. 20 to 17? Huh? Remember, Pro Football Focus graded my Dallas Cowboys receivers going into the game, the 28th receiving core in the league, 28th best, no Dalton Schultz. Knee injury. Cooper Rush is thrown to two rookie tight ends and some practice squad tight end. Do you realize the degree of difficulty he was up against? Against those ball hawks? Those turnover creators? In Philadelphia? Cooper Rush had just engineered, right before your very eyes, 17 unanswered points that easily could have been 21 unanswered points. Think about that. It was 20 to 17, but it easily, easily could have been 21 to 20 Dallas. And now it's 14 minutes and 39 seconds left in the game. And it's still 20 to 17. And I'm wondering, is anybody watching this but me? Had everybody else turned off their TVs to go celebrate the demise of Cooper Rush? But then you know what happened. My heart got ripped out again in a way I did not see coming. I said all offseason, my Cowboys will go only as far as 11 from heaven. My man, Micah Parsons, my oh Micah, and that defense can carry my team. Micah and his marauders. So pretty soon Philly faced third and four at its 44. Please, D, just one stop. Come on, Micah. And Jalen Hurts bolted from the pocket, straight up the field, right up the middle for five killer yards. Spy him, I tweeted. Look, I've told you before, I love me some Jalen Hurts. I can't help it. The day the Eagles stole him in the second round, I immediately tweeted that he immediately and always will be better than Shannon Sharp's man, Carson Wentz. I wince when I even speak his name. W-E-N-T-Z becomes W-I-N-C-E for me. Now I'm fearful that Jalen Hurts will haunt me the rest of my born days as a Philadelphia Eagle. What a gamer, what a baller leader, playmaker. Unfortunately, I would take Jalen Hurts' intangibles over Dak's intangibles.
I hope I eat those words. I hope I live to eat those words. But here we went again. It's third and fourth, the Dallas 45. And Jalen Hurts, read option, gives to Gainwell, five more yards, first down. No! Third and one at the Dallas 31, Jalen Hurts, power sneak for two. No! Jalen Hurts, 22 yards to A.J. Brown, seven more to Devontae Smith, 26 to 17 Eagles. Nine-point game. My defense let me down. My defense let me down. Now I worry, can it really stop anybody from running the ball when it really needs to? I don't know about that. Just one stop, and Cooper Rush, Cooper Rush would have gotten the ball back down only three. Cooper Rush would have engineered another touchdown drive. That's just what he continually, consistently has done. He had settled down. He had drawn a bead on the Eagles' defense. He just needed the football back one more time. I love watching Cooper Rush operate this offense so efficiently, so unspectacularly, and so successfully. We had him, and we let him off the hook. I was still trending. So now down nine, Cooper Rush had to go for broke. Looked like CD had a step, but as Cooper Rush was about to let it fly, Tyler Smith, my rookie left tackle, completely whiffed on Brandon Graham, completely missed him. Brandon Graham came unblocked and unloaded on Cooper Rush just as he threw, and the crown of Graham's helmet hit right up under Cooper Rush's chin. Got him right in the chin. It's roughing the passer. But Cooper Rush gets no respect, and he gets no calls, and the ball, of course, fluttered. Did C.D. Dam slow up, go up, and fight for it? Nope. He kept running his route with sort of pouty body language that said, damn, Cooper, I was open. CD at least could have knocked down what became Cooper Rush's third interception. Instead, the NFL world screamed in unison, see, we told you so. I was still trending. So I barely slept, but I could not wait for six 30 a.m. out here in L.A., 9.30 Eastern, to unleash on Undisputed. Shannon Sharp, as usual, went first in what we call our A block, right out of the box. And, of course, he proceeded to bombard Cooper Rush with all the blame. And as he spoke, I responded only with, Ugh! 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 I didn't say a word, but I guess Shannon felt I was interrupting him or at least distracting him. He got a little heated, maybe a lot heated, and he said, okay, you talk. Did I ever? Now, point of order. Occasionally, and quite obviously, Shannon and I do get mad at each other on live national TV. Brothers fight. But trust me on this. Once we go to break, we always let it go. Never ever has even an ounce of anger carried over to the next segment. Never ever have I taken a single ounce of anger home with me. As extreme as our passion is, as our pride is, beneath all that is a foundation of mutual respect, and dare I say, love. That's how Undisputed works and works and works. But I got to say, I'm sorry, Shannon, but you were wrong about Cooper Rush. I'm going to say it again, maybe the last time. Cooper Rush's first four starts in the National Football League, he did something that has never, ever been done before in first four starts. Cooper Rush had a passer rating of 90-plus in all four. 
going into the Philly game, Cooper Rush had the NFL's fifth best QBR. That's impossibly great. But nobody cared because everybody wrote off the Cowboys after Dak went down and Cooper Rush made everybody look so foolish. All the passes he threw and completed might as well have been eggs that he was throwing because he was hitting a lot of people in the face with those eggs. A lot of egg left on a lot of faces thanks to Cooper Rush. All he did was save the Dallas Cowboys season. Now Jerry Jones is saying, we've improved dramatically since that opening night against Tampa Bay. Well, then I don't think they had improved that much for the next game, which was Cincinnati at home, the defending AFC champ. And in the last minute of that game, without Michael Gallup, obviously without Amari from last year, Cooper Rush completed three straight huge clutch passes to set up a walk-off field goal to beat the defending AFC champs. Yet, in the end, in the eyes of most people, all Cooper Rush really accomplished was turning Dak Prescott back into a sympathetic figure, a savior. Josh Allen meets Patrick Mahomes. Okay, Dak, you got me. You're on. You're back in the saddle. All I ask, Dak, is that you operate the Cowboys offense as beautifully as Cooper Rush has been operating it at Minnesota on a Sunday night versus those Bengals, at Giants on a Monday night versus Washington, at Rams, and even at Philly last Sunday night when all Cooper Rush did was put my Cowboys back in position to beat the NFL's best and hottest team. Mr. Rush, I will miss you. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Join more than 3.5 million million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Bayless. Just go to Indeed.com slash Bayless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Bayless. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Back to your questions. This is Hal from Ohio. Who had a worse Sunday, the Bucks or your Cowboys? Well, how? Obviously, the answer is the Bucks times a thousand. The Steelers were down their top three cornerbacks and down their best player in the secondary, Minka Fitzpatrick, and down the defensive player of the year, TJ Watt, and they lost Cody Pickett, and they needed what? Mitch Trubisky to save the day by converting four straight late third and longs to save the game. Mitch Trubisky, he held off Tom Brady. But I say this is just what the doctor ordered for Thomas Edward Patrick Brady Jr. Maybe it's what Dr. Phil ordered considering what Brady's going through off the field. But I still believe with all my heart and soul that Brady and the Bucks will win this year's Super Bowl. I now believe Brady and the Bucks will upset the Eagles in Philadelphia in January in a playoff game. And I still believe 
Brady and the Bucks will beat Joe Burrow's Bengals in the Super Bowl. Just a quick reminder, the last time Tom Brady won a Super Bowl was his first year in Tampa. And would you believe that season on November the 8th, which is obviously a couple of weeks even deeper into the season than we are right now, at home on a Sunday night, Drew Brees and the Saints, arch rivals, beat Brady's Bucks 38-3. to Think about that, 38-3. to Brady barely threw for 200 yards. He threw no touchdown passes. He threw three interceptions. Tom Brady had a QBR scale of 0 to 100 of 4, F-O-U-R, 4. It was all-time, all-time bad. And the NFL world said, enough, Tom, go home, give it up. Three months later, he won the Super Bowl. That after stunning Aaron Rodgers in the number one seed, the Packers on the frozen tundra at Lambeau Field. Tom Brady beat Patrick Mahomes in the Super Bowl after losing at home to the Saints 38-3 with a QBR of four. So I warn you, ridicule him at your peril. Write him off, retire him, send him home if you dare. He now has you right where he wants you. Allow me this, a quick movie review. Last weekend, I watched the worst movie I have ever seen and I'm about to recommend it to you. This happened fairly late last Saturday night after I had been watching sports wall to wall all day long. Just needed a brief respite, little mindless escape. I'd watched Oklahoma, Kansas. I'd watched Oklahoma State, TCU, while I was watching Penn State, Michigan, and of course, Alabama, Tennessee. And then I watched Yankees, Cleveland, and Dodgers, Padres. And of course, I happily watched stinking Lincoln Riley score 42 at Utah and predictably give up 43. Because when it comes to preaching defense, stinking Lincoln might as well be an atheist. Would you believe my wife, Ernestine, not a big sports fan, watched the end of USC-Utah with me, her choice. She watched the end of Dodgers-Padres with me, her choice. Literally the shocking end to the best team money could buy, those Dodgers. So Ernestine definitely deserved and needed some disengaged entertainment. Usually we have something we've been looking forward to watching, but we were out. We'd watched all of our Jeopardies on Friday night. We watched five in a row. So here we were on Saturday night, and we looked at each other and said, well, what's on Netflix? We usually start with Netflix, then we go to Amazon Prime, then it's maybe HBO Max, then it's Hulu, usual suspects. But right away on Netflix, something called Blackout popped up. We watched the trailer. Josh Dumel looked action-packed. I shrugged. I said, I don't know. I'll try it. She shrugged and said, let it rip. That's her favorite expression. Let it rip. And off we went. I'm not all that familiar with Josh Dumel's work. I knew him mostly because he was married to Fergie. Vaguely knew that TV show, Las Vegas. I'd interviewed him a couple of times, TV shows I was on. Josh Dumel is now 49. But right away in Blackout, I realized the man can convincingly fight on film. I'm talking about convincingly, athletically, kick some assingly fight on film. So I was entertained. That's what I needed. So here's the description of Blackout on IMDb. 
A man wakes up in a hospital with no memory and quickly finds himself on the run in a lockdown hospital with the cartel on his tail. He scrambles to find his identity in the most vicious way. By the way, the lockdown hospital is in, I think, Mexico City. Not sure of that, but this hospital was quickly filled with the most stereotypical caricature cartel bad guys ever assembled. So after Dumel kills, I don't know, maybe the first 15 or 20 of them, two things came clear. Number one, nothing was clear. And number two, Dumel is incapable of being hurt by bullets or knives or hypodermic needles incapable, indestructible. So Ernestine finally looks at me. I don't know, we're maybe 20 minutes in. We're trying to take it dead seriously. And, and she says, I, I, I have no idea what's going on. She wanted to know, do I want to go, go on with the movie? And I said, well, I think it has something to do with this, this metal briefcase that I think he stole from the cartel. I, I said, I think he's DEA or maybe DEA who joined the cartel. Or I, I said, I have no idea, but let's, let's give it another couple of minutes. I mean, the truth was I was about to black out trying to figure out blackout. So Abby Cornish plays Dumel's love interest in blackout. At least I think she was his love interest. I'm not sure about that because at first she says he's his wife and then maybe his long-lost lover. Then you're led to believe she's CIA, but I, I don't know. I have no idea. But I know Abby Cornish from Sucker Punch and from playing Jack Ryan's love interest. And I'm thinking, how did she wind up in this? All of a sudden, out of nowhere, when you least expect it, she starts kicking one of the bad guy's asses. I mean, she's really kicking it with karate kicks and all kinds of jujitsu. And guess what I did? I laughed out loud. I couldn't help laughing because it was funny. It was so bad. It was great. And Ernestine suddenly started laughing and laughing and she was laughing so hysterically, it was like she was being tickled and she couldn't stop laughing. Trust me, it was that funny, at least to us at that moment. And that's when it hit me. Blackout is a potential cult classic. It is so cringeworthy on so many levels, it's hilarious. I don't think the director intended it to be satirical or cult funny. Then again, the director's name is Sam Macaroni. I'm not familiar with much of his work, if any. Has one feature film to his credit, Guest House, starring Pauly Shore. But I did read that he directed some of the action scenes in John Wick 3, so I give him credit for that. And as I said, the action scenes in Blackout are just absurdly astonishing. They're way over the top, preposterously, outrageously, entertainingly over the top. So once Ernestine and I got the hang of watching Blackout, we lost, well, we just lost it. We, we laughed and laughed. We laughed our asses off through the rest of the movie, which got dumber and dumber. It got more and more impossibly, implausibly, inscrutably, unmistakably unclear. All of a sudden, in the middle of the hospital, Josh Dumel comes on a meth lab. A what? A meth lab in the middle of the hospital? And it's being worked by these voluptuous women who are completely naked in the middle of the hospital. I, I kid you not, they're completely, utterly naked. This is impossibly bad movie bad. 
and Dumel keeps facing down these bad guys in the hospital hallways. There'll be two bad guys with Uzis. I'm talking about machine guns. They will unload hundreds of rounds of bullets at Dumel, who will dive left and right, and miraculously, he never gets hit by a bullet. And then once they're out of ammo, Dumel just splatters the two guys with a pistol. That's all he's got is a pistol. Blood just explodes from their chest. 20 wounds each, and we explode with laughter. Then suddenly, Dumel has this giant walkie-talkie phone. I, I have no idea where it came from. And on it is, I think, his DEA boss, played by Nick Nolte. That Nick Nolte, who's growling at him. That growly, gravelly voice of his. And I'm saying, what? Where did he get that contraption? He couldn't have been carrying around in his pocket, not while he's fighting. And how did Nick Nolte get the number of that? I, I have no idea. Hysterical laughter from Skip and Ernstine. And the cartel, for some reason, wants the metal briefcase, but Dumel can't remember what happened to it because he's lost his memory. And yet the order is to take Dumel alive. Yet all the bad guys are trying their damnedest to kill him. And they should have about 20 times, but they can't. Then all of a sudden, Abby Cornish randomly turns up with the briefcase in her hand, the metal briefcase. And Dumel says, where'd you get that? And she says, I found it in the doctor's office. You, you what? The, the cartel's on a murderous rampage through the hospital, and you found the briefcase in some doctor's office just sitting out plain sight? That's what she said. So in the end, I think inside the briefcase are the names and addresses of all the Illuminati, all the Illuminati members who secretly run the world. But don't hold me to that. I think it's all the Illuminati who secretly run the world, but I'm not sure. The entire movie lasts one hour and 21 minutes, which is perfectly short. Ernestine and I are still laughing about it. We're still talking about Blackout. We might just watch it again, now that we know not to try to take it so seriously for the first half hour. I highly recommend Blackout. It's the dumbest, silliest, best, worst, all-time bad movie I have ever had the pleasure of watching. Back to your questions. This is Jay from Livingston, New Jersey. Baker is responsible for the mess in Carolina right now, right? And also, Ethan from Oregon asks... Would you rather start a franchise with Patrick Mahomes or Baker Mayfield? Ha ha. I get it. Baker Mayfield has become the easiest target in all of sports. He is the lowest hanging rotten excuse me, rotten fruit in all of sports. He is the sorry butt of an NFL record number of jokes. So now, from me, the last remaining Baker fan on earth, one final word on the career of Baker Mayfield, which I fear is teetering as we speak, even though he's only 27 years of age. I still believe in Baker, the on-the-field quarterback, but off the field, he has lost even me. Now, you can make the case that Baker's career was simply ill-fated from the start. Wrong place, wrong time. So he went from one owner-coach clown show in Cleveland to another owner-coach clown show in Carolina. You can't choose which team drafts you. Cleveland obviously had the number one overall pick, took Baker. But Baker could have chosen where he played this season, yet he folded his cards early. I didn't get it. 
because he wanted to play for the team ranked 32nd and dead last in most offseason power rankings. And by the way, the Carolina Panthers are now ranked 32nd and last in most of the power rankings. Obviously, Baker Mayfield believed he could turn around the Panthers pretty much the way Brady turned around the Bucs. I actually believed he could too, maybe not to that extent, but I believed he could turn them around. I'll get to that in just a moment. Now, quickly, my background with Baker. I watched every snap he took at the University of Oklahoma. Heck, I watched him walk on before that at Texas Tech and play pretty well and then walk on at Oklahoma and play great. Changed the culture at Oklahoma. He became the Pied Piper of the Sooners. Obviously, he won the Heisman Trophy as a walk-on for my Oklahoma Sooners that I grew up loving. Yeah, he could be a cocky front-runner. They used to say in baseball, yeah, he was full of piss and vinegar. Had Charlie Weiss, Brady's first QB coach with the Patriots. We had him on one day, and he just raved about watching Baker play in the national semifinal against Georgia. He said, give me that guy. I'm drafting that guy because that guy has something I can't teach or coach. That guy was always into it with somebody, talking trash to somebody, into it with the Kansas players who disrespected him by failing to shake his hand, refusing to shake his hand after the coin toss. He's grabbing his crotch at them later in the game. TCU, he hit some kid who had the audacity to run across the back line during warm-ups, hit him right in the head with a pass. Nice throw. Baylor, he's tweeting, trash-talking. Your daddy's here. I'm sure they thought he was, pardon my language, a cocky little shit. But it worked for Baker because that's who he was and that's what drove him. Unfortunately, he drove all the way to, for reasons I cannot explain, to Fayetteville, Arkansas on a Saturday night. I have no idea what he's doing there. Not an arch rival of Oklahoma, obviously. Not yet. He had too much to drink in Fayetteville. One thing leads to the other. The cops are after him. He's running from the cops in Fayetteville, Arkansas got slammed up against a concrete retaining wall by one of the cops. It could have gone really bad. You could make the case he's lucky he was white. The incident should have concerned me more than it did, but I thought, well, that's just Baker, but I should have been more concerned. I, I said, I'm taking him number one overall. He's better than Sam Darnold. Shannon loves Sam Darnold. Joel Klatt loved Sam Darnold. A lot of people love Sam Darnold. I did not. I said Baker would be better than Sam Darnold. I said he'll be way, way, way better than Josh Rosen. And that was certainly the case. I wasn't sure about Lamar. Watched him a lot at Louisville. I just wasn't quite sure, but I loved what he was made of. I just didn't see MVP coming, or obviously I would have jumped all over that. Still a big fan. Josh Allen was my X factor. I just couldn't get a grip on him. I saw him play one decent team, one real football team at Wyoming that year. It was at Iowa. They lost 24 to three. I watched it. Josh Allen went 24 of 40 for 172 yards with two picks. Happy feet in the pocket, lost his poise, unraveled lost his accuracy. I, I just didn't love what I saw, but it was a small sample size because that's all I had to go on. It's all anybody had to go on, really. So congratulations, Buffalo. You saw something nobody else saw. And guess what? Cleveland made me look pretty good because Cleveland did take Baker number one overall. And I guess very few people saw that coming. I did. At least I pushed for it. And all of a sudden, Baker was actually in a great spot because the Browns were 0-16 the year before, and he was back in his element. Big chip on shoulder. 
overachieving underdog. And here he came as a raw rookie. He's thrown into that fire. What did he do? He won seven games for a team that was 0-16. That's hard to do in this league. He wasn't just the talk of the town in Cleveland. He was the talk of the country. And my man, Shannon Sharp, started to drive my bandwagon. He co-opted it. I'd come in, and he'd be, shake and bake, baby. Baker Mayfield. Shannon loved him, at least for a while. Guess who else loved him? Progressive, based in Cleveland, Ohio. They loved him. He was the it kid for Progressive. And then I look up, and for Heisman House. What? Baker Mayfield? No, it, it's too much too soon. And all of a sudden, I'm bombarded by Progressive and Heisman House commercials. We got two house commercials because Progressive starts a campaign at home with Baker Mayfield, who's living at Cleveland Stadium. I get it. I guess they were semi-cute, very clever. Heisman House, he's living there. We got all kinds of former great Heisman winners, great pro players surrounding Baker Mayfield, but he's the it kid. He's the star of stars in the Nissan Heisman House commercials. I could not believe it, and I was horrified by it. I was astounded by it. I kept saying on Undisputed, no, 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 no. It's way too much too soon, Baker. His, his team should have advised him. They got to wait. My dear old friend Lee Steinberg made Patrick Mahomes wait until he'd actually won a Super Bowl before Patrick plunged into all the State Farm commercials. It's brilliant. You gotta wait. You're painting a target on your back that's getting bigger and bigger and bigger that you will not be able to live up to. Baker had done next to nothing except win seven games as a rookie. That was an achievement, but it didn't include a playoff win or a Super Bowl win or a ring. And the target grew bigger and bigger and bigger. And I'm watching commercial after commercial after. Lord have mercy. It's, it's Baker trying to find the smoke alarm in the stadium. And, and it's Baker having to walk all the way across the stadium to get his wife a lemonade. And it's Baker joins a book club. And it's he gossips with a neighbor outside the stadium. And he's searching for the circuit breaker in the stadium and he's cleaning up the stadium after a rock concert and he calls a plumber and then he prepares for rain and then he turns the lights out in the stadium so he can go to bed and then he mows the lawn and then he eats his breakfast and then he meets Alice Cooper on and on and on and on. Target, 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 growing bigger and bigger and bigger and Baker was so smug and so smarmy and so condescending in those commercials with nothing yet to back any of it up. Boy, Progressive must have loved those commercials. They must have really connected with focus groups. And I, for one, as I said again and again and again on Undisputed, hated me some at-home-with commercials. No way he could live up to that. So Hugh Jackson got fired midway through that first campaign. It was not Baker's fault. But Freddie Kitchens gets elevated. So we go into year two. Freddie Kitchens, nice guy, but joke, buffoonish. He's your head coach? You're kidding. And then right on schedule, here comes Odell pouring gasoline into the fire burning underneath the hot seat Baker was sitting on because of all those commercials. Expectations are going through the roof that was not above Baker's house in Cleveland. Odell didn't want to ever be in Cleveland. He wasn't born to play for the Cleveland Browns. He had three surgeries while he was a Brown. Three. Became a shell of himself. Baker loves Odell. They were close friends, vacationed together, idolized Odell, started forcing the ball to Odell in year two, and Odell couldn't live up to that much focus in the offense. Wrong place, wrong time. But of course, Odell's 20 million followers on social media had to have his back, had to find somebody to blame, and all of a sudden it started becoming Baker's fault. 
Baker's followers at war with Baker Mayfield, not at home with, at war with. There's no coincidence in the third year that Baker took off after Odell tore his ACL at Cleveland. 2020, Baker won eight of his next 11 games, including Cleveland's first playoff game since 1994, 26-ish years. At Pittsburgh against your arch rival in the division, Baker had a QBR of 91 on a scale of 0 to 100. Over that 11-game stretch, Pro Football Focus graded Baker Mayfield the fourth-best quarterback in pro football. Baker can play. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. After his first two games in 2021, Baker led the NFL in completion percentage. Hmm. But near the end of game two, he not only tore his labrum in his left shoulder, he fractured that left shoulder. And he decided not to have surgery because he wanted to show his teammates he could play through it, suck it up, gut it out. Bad idea. Baker mostly stunk in 2021. Baker had surgery as soon as the season ended. Look, I, I repeatedly said when the Browns opted to chase Deshaun Watson, I, I repeatedly said, hey, it, I, I got no problem with it. Deshaun's way better than Baker will ever think about being because I had Deshaun as a top five quarterback. I did have a problem with the shot from above. Somebody in the Cleveland organization said, we need an adult at quarterback. I agree, Baker has a runaway ego that he can't always back up on the field. But Deshaun Watson is an adult? Lord have mercy. Yet what got me the most, if Baker had just sat tight, Cleveland would have been a force to cut him, just the way they were forced to cut Odell. Remember, Odell got cut by the Browns. He became a complete free agent. The Browns had to pay the freight. Odell got to choose Green Bay, New Orleans, Los Angeles Rams got to choose. But just because the Panthers showed some weird interest in Baker, he weirdly and, and gratefully sacrificed $5 million of his salary just because they quote-unquote wanted him. And he turned right back into, I thought, the hopeless underdog again. Chip on shoulder, here we go. Went to camp, blew away Sam Darnold, wasn't even close. I watched all of his preseason snaps. He threw some sensational passes, sensational take-your-breath-away passes from Baker Mayfield. He looked like Oklahoma Baker. And I thought, this is the perfect spot for him to, quote-unquote, walk on again at Carolina. Defense was still decent. Offensive line had been rebuilt. I thought better than it was. C-Mac, DJ Moore, I thought this is just the kind of dead-in-the-water, laying-in-the-weeds team that Pied Piper Baker can detonate. I picked the Panthers to be a surprise team. I picked the Panthers to shock the NFL and be a wild-card team. And I hinged my pick on the opener. I made it very clear Baker needs to win the opener, the revenge game against his ex-team, the Browns. Had to win that one. Had to create immediate front for Baker to run with. He is a front runner in a good way, but he's a fire starter. He's a pepper pot. Gotta win that one so that you can reignite the Panthers. And then it happened. Right before my very eyes, I, I knew it was wrong but I just couldn't give it up. Baker Mayfield had been on his best behavior. 
He had been an adult for the Carolina Panthers. He had stayed out of the preseason headlines. And all of a sudden, out of the blue comes some weird new marketing campaign with a t-shirt off the leash. Some cheap, cheesy t-shirt they're going to try to market. A cheap shot at Kevin Stefanski, his obviously ex-coach with the Browns. My God, what do you need nickels and dimes for? Hadn't Baker made generational wealth kind of money from Progressive and Nissan? I, I think so. What are you doing, Baker? It was such a bad sign, and now that I look back, it was the death knell. But in that fourth quarter of that home opener against his ex-team, Baker roared back. He threw for 155 yards. It's hard to do. There aren't many quarterbacks alive who can throw for 155 in a fourth quarter against a very good defense. Baker brought his new team back all the way to a 24-23 lead over his old team. Baker can play. And on Cleveland's final drive, the Browns got the benefit of a bogus roughing call, and then they got away with near murder. It was obvious intentional grounding on Jacoby Brissett. He clearly decided not to spike the ball as he bolted away from center, not to spike it immediately, which the rules say you must if you want to stop the clock. He took a full stride, and then he said, whoops, maybe I better not do this. Maybe I better spike it. I think he just forgot to spike it. That's a 10-yard penalty and a loss of down. One ref immediately threw his yellow flag, and somehow the head ref talked him out of it. No, it's okay. Give him a break. Give him a break for what? It's a blatant violation of that rule. So the rookie out of LSU, Cade York, should have had to try an NFL record 68-yard field goal to win that game. There's no way he makes that. But he did make a 58-yarder to kick me right in the stomach. 26-24 Browns cost me 10 cases of Diet Mountain Dew to Shannon Sharp. 10 cases with a 58-yard field goal that should have been 68. And the truth was, that was the end of Baker as I knew and loved him. The next week, he, he did play well enough at the Giants. Remember, the Giants now 5-1 to win the game, but Graham Gano won it with a 56-yarder, 19-16. The Panthers did beat the Saints, but Baker was pretty terrible in that game, and you could just see, I know his game, he was losing confidence. He's a momentum playmaker. You could just see his season was going to hell. All of a sudden, he's getting passes batted at the line of scrimmage. No idea where that came from. Never been a problem before, and suddenly, it was the problem. Matt Rule fired. He's never anything but a college coach. In way over his head, looked like an imposter standing on the sideline to me. So I was very wrong about the Panthers. But I'm not wrong about Baker. He can play. He's way better than Sam Darnold. And now the clown show Panthers, who traded a second, a fourth, and a sixth for Sam Darnold, who are paying him $19 million this season, I'm pretty sure we'll go back to Sam Darnold when he's healthy. He's a good guy, just can't play. I'm assuming the Panthers are done with Baker Mayfield. I'm assuming he won't play another down for them, and I am just fine with that because I wouldn't wish that team right now on anybody, especially Baker Mayfield, as they unload their stars as we approach the trade deadline and they look only to the future. But now Baker's future looks bleak. That's two straight years of bad tape. Worse, Baker has become the easiest and biggest target in all of sports. So easy to hate Baker. He, he now leads the league in only one category, and that's hate. See my man Shannon Sharp.
he brought so much of this on himself with those egomaniacal commercials, so smug, so cocky, so too cool. What team now wants the PR headache of signing Baker Mayfield? What team is going to give him a shot to be a starting quarterback now after two years of bad tape? PR nightmare? Joke? Headache? Bad tape? Bad guy? Nobody wants that. And then who wants Baker Mayfield as a backup quarterback? I mean, what a profile he has. He's now become so famous or infamous for all those commercials. Backup quarterbacks are supposed to be seen and not heard. They're supposed to, as you know, toil in relative silence and obscurity. Baker is incapable of toiling in silence and obscurity. Fame has swallowed him whole. Nobody wants a backup quarterback who's a commercial star. And yet, I fear that now Baker Mayfield will be remembered in the long term only for his commercials. His only claim to fame or infamy will be all those commercials. And now in the end, trust me on this, all those commercials are about to dry completely up. That is it for episode 38. Thank you for listening and watching. Thanks to Jonathan Berger and his all-pro team for making this show go. Thanks to Tyler Korn for producing. Remember, Undisputed, every weekday, 9.30 to noon Eastern, The Skip Bayless Show, every week.